right up until that moment you're like fully committed to the slope you can kind of yeah you can step back step out extricate yourself from the decision chain and and take a really good you know deep dive into the information we got hit by an air blast and sort of just knocked completely flat like it was really powerful air blast just packed it just packed us all in we just kind of curled up there waiting for the big stuff to hit you know you just figure if you get hit with an air blast like that the big chunks are coming this is fred aldridge and you're listening to the avalanche hour podcast You are tuned into another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by Ten Barrel Brewing and Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well. We've got a couple more episodes to round out Season 6 of the Avalanche Hour podcast, and we sure hope that you've been enjoying the podcast this season. Um... Whatever you're doing in your transitions to summer, I hope you're having fun, staying safe, and uh, yeah, getting after it. You know, there's still plenty of skiing to be done in the Pacific Northwest here. It's uh, full-on volcano season these days, Um, but I'm sure many people are also transitioning to mountain biking and hiking and trail running and Man, what a cool time of year. I just, I, I love the spring. So much to do. Before we get started here with a great interview with a good friend, Fred Aldridge, I'd just like to give a few shout outs, of course, to our sponsors. We couldn't do it without you. And thank you for your continued support. VEASAN Avalanche Control, Ten Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. I'd also like to thank the A3, the American Avalanche Association, for everything they do to keep this community held together. Um, they are oftentimes the, the network that connects everybody, at least within the United States here. So uh, thanks for helping to get the word out about the podcast and thanks for everything you do. The webinars this season have been great. Um, I've really enjoyed those. And of course, the Avalanche Review is always Always a welcome sight in my mailbox when it shows up. So if you're not a member of the A3 and you live in the United States, consider joining as a member or a professional member. Um, And you can find out more on their website, AmericanAvalancheAssociation.org. Well, let's jump right into this great interview with Fred Aldridge. Fred, um, Fred has a plethora of experience in managing risk across several disciplines, uh, not just the snow and avalanche world through heli-ski guiding, uh, but also in aviation with uh, logistics in, in Antarctica, as well as uh, some Himalayan expeditions, big expeditions uh, all over the world, really, um, as well as, as managing aircraft in, in the fire aviation world as well. And so Fred and I have a great chat uh, mostly centered around 
around risk and risk tolerance and risk creep and kind of breaking down what are the what are the elements of risk that we deal with and how do we think about that so um, always appreciate Fred's thoughts on things and I've oftentimes found myself in the mountains you know trying to make a decision and and I'll often think what would Fred do so there you have it Um, big mentor of mine awesome friend great person here we go with Fred Aldridge Welcome to the show, Fred. How you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How are things in the rubies these days? Things are getting better. We've had a lot of uh, new snow this week, and uh, yeah, blue skies now. Right. We're recording this on February 26th, and just in a previous conversation, you were saying um, it was pretty amazing how how good the skiing has been through through much of January and February, even with little input or little help from mother nature as it often is in the rubies. Hey, yeah, it's, you know, it's been, it's been way better than we deserve for sure. I, um, the temps have stayed really cold and we've been fine in soft snow North facing pretty much most all the way through that, uh, you know, the dry spell that was over the, the high pressure that's been over the Western United States. And, uh, now we've, last week we've been in a pattern change and uh it's been it's been nice awesome well fred uh a little background on our our history i I think i first met you out on the fire line somewhere um with bonneville hot shots and uh then we started ski guiding together when when i made my way over to the ruby mountains and uh, I've always really enjoyed spending time with you in the mountains and um, lear- have learned a lot from you both in the, in the fire realm and in the snow and avalanche realm. Um, you wear a lot of hats and, and you have done a lot of things in your career. I was hoping you could maybe just give us a, a brief history of, of who Fred Aldridge is and where he came from and some of the experiences that have helped you get to where you are today. Okay. I'll do my best. Uh, yeah. Thanks for having me. I, um, I guess I should say I started, um, at Snowbird about three decades ago. Um, I started, uh, on the trail crew, uh, and really I didn't even know at that point you could make a living outside as I, I wasn't really, I don't think that many people did it that day. And I certainly growing up, I certainly wasn't aware of it. Um, but I eventually worked my way onto the snowboard ski patrol, learned how to ski. Um, and, uh, at that, at that time there were a whole group of people that would migrate between snowboard in the winter and Mount Rainier up in Washington in the summer. And, uh, so I worked with those guys until I had enough, you know, experience and skill to, to get on the guide team for Rainier Mountaineering. And, um, that just became my life for about a decade. And, uh, and then I made my move out to the rubies and have been out there for about 16 seasons and, uh, summers, um, started wildland fire about that same time as the move out to the rubies. So that kind of became the seasonal back and forth. 
and you're still pretty involved in, in fire aviation these days. Yeah, that's right. I, um, so I, we were on the hot shots together. I moved to a, a, a hell attack, a, an initial attack platform working out of an A-star helicopter started to get some aviation experience there. And, and, um, then now I work with, uh, helicopters and tanker planes as a base manager. And that's, that's sort of been my most, I guess, structured, um, I guess, risk sort of theory introduction is, is through the aviation world. Yeah. It seems like most of your professional life has been in steeped in, in risk management between, uh, heli skiing, you know, avalanche mitigation at the ski area, aviation within fire. And then you also spend some time down South on the ice. Yeah. I just returned home from my eighth season in Antarctica. So I spend November, December, January, uh, working for a private company. We do logistics for, uh, scientists, but also climbers, skiers, and adventurers down in Antarctica. So that's always, um, an interesting twist to the whole program as well. And then the, the past, uh, I don't know, maybe six or seven years, what, what have your spring times look like? Uh, seems like there's always an expedition on Fred's horizon. Well, yeah, so I don't, um, from Rainier mountaineering, uh, that of course it, you spend a few summers guiding Mount Rainier and, and that sort of snowballs into, you know, first Alaska trips and then South America and eventually Europe and, uh, and then Nepal. And, and I don't really guide mountaineering much anymore, but I usually try to do a, a trip or two a year for friends, um, in, in, uh, recently Africa, Nepal and South America. Well, I'm sure we'll get into some stories from that here a little bit later in the hour, but we're sort of trying to frame this interview, this chat, um, around risk and risk management. And um, maybe I'll just start kind of with my my understanding of risk, and I'm sure you'll expand on it. But just I've, I've been recently trying to just kind of dive into the anatomy of risk, right? And, and so within the avalanche context, um, we have a hazard, right? An objective hazard that we can't necessarily control. It's, it's naturally occurring. Right, and the avalanche hazard is is somewhat defined by the likelihood and size or destructive potential of said avalanche, and then combining our exposure and vulnerability to that avalanche hazard, or it could be an aviation hazard, it could be any hazard, um, is how we equate our risk towards that hazard. Is that how you understand it? Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty good summary. Um, it, it's an enormous <laughs> uh, subject, and um, I might just back up a little bit on that. And uh, what, so, one of the most fascinating things to me about risk is that I think uh, you you come to the realization um, that it's uh, entirely individual if you, if you think of it as a calculation. And that uh, it changes constantly and that it should change constantly for you as an individual. Um, just maybe explain that a little deeper. So you have, you have the objective side of risk 
and and this you can modify with uh, your skill set. It's, it's 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 quite observable. So you through you can modify your risk equation through experience. You can modify it through practice. You can modify it through education. You know, if you're talking about going into the backcountry and interacting with avalanche terrain, like to be good at it, eventually you're going to need all of those things, right? And and you would expect all of those aspects to evolve, you know, your, your experience level, your ability to, you know, work the technical aspects, the, the snow evaluation, the the grain identification, whether your education will change that um, and your exposure. So over time, you would say that, you know, you, you change that maybe what would be a very dangerous environment for someone who is, is really inexperienced and doesn't have a lot of judgment in that environment, you would agree that you could um, change that objectively. Does that make sense to mm-hmm. you? Yeah, very much so. So if you can change that equation through the objective side, um, but, and that's of course individual, you know, everybody has different skill sets, different levels of experience, but even if those are very, very similar, you have this subjective side, this narrative, you know, what, what you decide the meaning um, or how you're going to use those data and facts. Um, it, that's also astonishingly like really individual as, as well. And, and it's, I've been listening to your podcast quite a bit. I really have enjoyed. There's this really interesting trend where you have kind of younger, <laughs> hard, you have the younger, the hard chargers, the people that are, like developing those skill sets, um, and and they want to know like how how they they pull off more sort of serious and audacious projects, and and you have kind of the old the old dogs on the other side where they're they've sort of done that, and um, they they feel like oh it's time to back off. I have I have children now. I'd rather just go ski with them. I don't need the adrenaline. Um, uh, what does there's there was a great conversation with uh was it Zohan mm-hmm. um Bill yeah. Amar, about how he you know he's really decided like doesn't really need to ski you know um powder off the off the top of the Grand Teton anymore like that he's just starting to draw different lines um and it's not that his objective side is is lessening it's probably even getting sharper but his subjective side is so I think to begin with like it would be really my advice to to people going through this is to, you know, continue to evaluate that, like not, not just your objective side. Cause we can do that. You know, we can, we can look at our objectively at our skill sets and this is a really useful exercise, you know, to, to say, well, you know, when was the last time I did a beacon drill? When was the last time I dug a pit? How good am I at this? So you can evaluate your, your, objective skill set but then you should also really like think about why you're doing what you're doing you know are you getting the same you know meaning and joy and and uh thrill and what's that worth to you and so i i think that would be a good place to start is, is just to maybe each season to evaluate where you stand and and what your goals are and what you're trying to accomplish. And that's sort of a better platform or, or a beginning of a narrative to, to start looking at 
the more technical aspects, you know, like what, and then you can go on down the line looking at, you know, you talked about the likelihood and hazard and all that stuff. You can, you can work down that line, but, but you'll have a better baseline of, of, well, you know, if I have the feeling that I'm really starting to push the envelope, is that where I want to be? Am I out there to, to push my skills or am I just out there and I want to have a, I want to come home and drink a beer and and that's enough. You and I have talked before about, um, you know, just operating in a ever changing environment, right? Constantly changing. The snowpack's always changing. The weather's always changing. Whether we're talking about uh, heli ski guiding, backcountry skiing, or fire and aviation. And so talk a little bit about how you approach that changing environment. And maybe, maybe you start out with one mindset for the day. And, and how are you able to sort of uh, change that mindset as you're getting new information and making sure you're paying attention to the right information that's incoming into your brain? And a great question. Um, and I'd, I'd be really interested to know, like, um, but I actually talk to myself. <laughs> I don't know how many other people do this, but um, I like maybe not out loud, but I've, I've developed the habit of, of asking myself those questions internally. Like uh, what is changing? You know, what do you not know? What is different? Um, we can, we can tell a, a pretty good story about um, some of this stuff a little deeper in and, and it might bring some more meaning to it, but well, I don't want to get too abstract, but um, one of the things that I think about these days a lot is uh, I guess what you would call the curve of knowledge, like your curve of understanding. Um, I think there's a, this undeniable um, sort of chain or process of how we come to understand the, the environment and the world around us. And at the bottom of that curve is similarity. Like we always start and we do this when we, we're talking with each other, right? Like if you want to explain something to somebody, you say, well, it's like this, or this it's, you know, if, if you had an experience, it's similar to this. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So you, you always start with this kind of pattern recognition or, you know, what is close, you want to come to as close as what you've experienced before. And, and the brain does it pretty naturally, but it's, it's really important to understand that that's just the bottom of that curve. Like, at the top of the curve, so if, if the bottom of the curve is similarity, at the top of the curve is differentiation. Like, what is different? What have you not experienced before? What has changed? I have this client, Whitney, um, and this really, like, drove this home to me. I, we were out there talking, and, and, and Whitney used to be a, a professional race car driver, and he... Um, he drove a minivan and, and I like, I like cars. I like to go fast. And, and um, we're, we're talking cars. I'm like, Whitney, doesn't that drive you absolutely nuts that, you know, you used to go around a track at 200 miles an hour and, and uh, now you're driving around a minivan. And his, his response was, you know what? I only drove a perfect car once and it only lasted for about a half hour. 
<laughs> like, like I had no idea, you know, like that, that was, I, I guess at those speeds and temperatures and pressures and, and the tires and like things change so rapidly, but, but that was just fascinating that when you were that good at something like all those tiny, tiny things that probably like if you and I were in a car going 220 miles an hour around a track, you know, I, I, my guess is you would be so gripped out of your mind mm-hmm. and so out of your depth that you would never perceive any of that. Right. Sure. It would, you would just be like hanging on for the ride, but the, the realm of the expert is, is that is up there. The top of the curve is differentiation and understanding that things do and are in constant flux and change. And so, yeah, I'll like, I'll actually walk myself through that, you know, I'll, I'll say, okay, what's, you know, what did I expect? What is like, you know, you're in the guide meeting the night before and then in the morning and you kind of have this idea or narrative and what is the smoke, you know, what are we supposed to see? How deep is the snow? Is it, you know, is it touchy or is it stubborn? And, and so you start out with like, okay, this is what I was expecting. And, 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 but then you really need to, once you get that down and, and sometimes that's really surprising, you know, you may go out and, and nothing's like you expected it to be. And, and that would be like a huge red flag for me these days, like to stop my process and like to go back to the beginning and start gathering basic knowledge and pattern recognition instead of just sort of continuing on with my plan and, and sort of reestablishing that baseline until I thought that I, I felt really good about what was going on. And then I would basically work myself up into the really the, the micro stuff. Like, what did I not expect? What's changed from yesterday? You know, is, is the wind coming from where I expected it to? So I, I think it's really easy to go into an environment and it seems to be quite familiar. And, and that's just sort of where we stop our evaluation process. You're like, okay, yeah, this is what I expected. And I'm just going to like, it's enough that I'm not going to really sort of continue to evaluate the environment because that takes effort. Like, let's be honest, you know, what, what we want to do out there is we want to go out and ski and have a good time and spend you know, the, the least amount of time possible, you know, doing the not fun stuff, you know, digging the pits, looking at snow, having, you know, lengthy field discussions on what we, you know, where we're going or where we ought to be doing. Right. We always want to just like minimize that. But, uh, uh, if, if you, part of the discipline of being good at this stuff is to like work your way all the way through the top of the curve, you know? So, because it's it's the 10%, right? It's the 10% that catches you. Um, I, I think we've seen, you know, there's a really recognizable pattern of accidents and fatalities that happen in the middle ground. Is, am I correct in saying that? Like people usually don't get caught when it's really simple and people usually don't get caught, you know, when the compass rose is red and black and, you know, everything's in considerable and high. We, we tend to see that a lot of the accidents in moderate conditions, right. That mm-hmm. are, that are very probably similar to the environment, what we were expecting, but we just didn't pick up on that, that little 
extra difference or, or do the work that maybe would have caught that. Sure. Yeah. I think our, our brains kind of gravitate towards a little bit more black and white and we often find ourselves operating in that gray area. Yeah. You know, Kahneman um, talks a lot about that. He, he wrote that, you know, the best book for that is, is thinking fast and uh, slow. Am I getting that title right? Yeah. It's, it's under my pillow. I've been trying to just absorb it while I sleep and I don't know if it's <laughs> working, but I've, I've hacked yeah. my way through several chapters of it. Never, never been successful in finishing it yet, but it's yeah, still it's, there. It's heavy and it, yeah, it's, it's not for everybody, but you know, one of the, the huge things I've taken out of that is like how much effort it actually takes to really use your brain, you know, to really engage the, and organize the facts, how hard that work is to do and how rarely we actually do that. Almost constantly, even the people who are really good at this, just, just use those heuristics, the shortcuts, the rules of thumb, you know, the pattern recognition, like even on a really, really good day, we're, we're probably running like 90%, 95%, just sort of pattern recognition, low effort, you know, thinking processes, you know, and, and maybe if we're lucky and we're really disciplined, you know, we have a good environment. We really engage in those, you know, just a few times a day, maybe during those guide meetings or, you know, while you're digging that pit and, while you're having those discussions with your ski partners, you know, you just like have that, those moments where you really, really engage the data and the information and try and come up with, you know, try and challenge your thought processes. Mm. It seems like slowing down that process uh, is, is key to doing that. It's probably like if, if you're, you know, your single biggest weapon or tool, in, in your arsenal is, is, uh, you know, especially with avalanches and th- right up until that moment, you're like fully committed to the slope. You can kind of, yeah, you can step back, step out, extricate yourself from the decision chain and, and take a really good, you know, deep dive into the information and, and try to challenge yourself. We've talked a little bit in the past about how risk management in the avalanche environment, it, it, it could almost, it's, it couldn't be simpler. Right. Like (laughs) you walk one direction and there's hazard and you can just avoid it. Right. It's just where we want to engage in what we love to do and what we're providing as a service, um, taking people skiing. Uh, that's where we, we start to have to manage that. Right. It's, it's so true. It's so true. Um, there, there is nothing simpler than not getting caught in an avalanche. Right. There's nothing simpler. If you know there's snow and mountains, like don't go in there. You won't get caught in an avalanche. Right. I just like it, it really is that simple, which is kind of an interesting to think, you know, to stand back and take a look at that. It's a it's a little bit like prying the, the car keys out of the, a, a drunk person's hand. You know, mm-hmm. like we know, like we're fully aware it's a bad idea, but we're gonna go do it anyway. So um one of the things you can think about is, is, you know, your, your decision chain or your decisions have a momentum to them. They manifest in a very physical reality really quickly. For instance, like 
skiing in itself is, is a dangerous activity, right? We know this, we've both ski patrolled. Um, you know, if you, if you take a hill full of skiers, any, any day of the year, you're going to have a certain number of blown out knees, you know, broken wrists and, and frequently more, you know, even femur fractures and occasionally even fatalities. And that's just skiing around a resort. So some people would, um, would say that skiing is, is a dangerous activity. And, and then there's people that think that that's not, you know, interesting or engaging in enough and then they, they want to go do it in the backcountry. Well, okay. So now we've got, you know, all those, you know, you have weird snow conditions, you have hidden obstacles, open Creek beds. And, and of course you're interacting with avalanche terrain with, with no experts sort of in between you and that hazard. And then you have the real nuts like Caleb Merrill, who who then want to add a helicopter to that whole mix, and now you're low and slow and toe and landings, dead man's curve, and and that whole mess. So it's really interesting to look at that fact. Like you're sort of rushing towards this this blind, crumbling edge that's completely invisible, and you know you at any point in there you could turn around and walk the other way and, you, and you've got 10,000 miles in the other direction that's that's you know completely safe so that's an interesting thing to look at it and uh one of the jobs i do is 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 it's kind of, I, I work as a safety advisor down in antarctica that's kind of mostly i work with aircraft but I also kind of uh work as a like an advisor operations advisor uh, before we go down at the at the start of the season we'll get together in a room and um you know we try try and get on the same page and what i what i tell them is is you know everybody in that room they uh you know you said okay here's the deal we're we're gonna we're gonna get in this old russian aircraft we're gonna fly across the drake passage which is the most you know dangerous body of water on the on the earth we're gonna slide the plane out on a on an a ice runway a blue ice runway completely made of ice um you're going to live on a glacier crevasses everywhere and you know the environment if you find yourself without shelter for more than a few hours is going to kill you and <laughs> so like everybody in that room was like yeah it sounds great i don't see what the problem is <laughs> like, let's do it right so i I always think that's pretty funny. And I, I tell them like, you know, I, I don't know what your final grade, you know, in this risk management process that we call life is, but um, right now you're all getting a C minus, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like, like your, your, your ability to assess risk compared to the average person is, is like clearly really poor. You know, so this is this is what we've got to work with. We have a, we have a group of people that uh, lean really hard into risk, and and you could say that exact same thing about you know people who ski in the backcountry and in avalanche terrain. So, it, if you want to know something about yourself, like maybe one of the first things you ought to know is that even when faced with like obvious risk. You're gonna like if you're a back if you're like a, a backcountry skier on a normal basis and you're doing that stuff, you should know that you are a person that tends to minimize or think they can mitigate 
the risks, like you, you just have to have that belief that your, your, you know, your objective skill set, your ability to evaluate that um, is going to exceed your environment. We just know that that's not true all the time. So how do you deal with that X factor, right? Like, uh, you know, the first word that comes to my mind is, is margins. Yeah. I think that's a great no, you know, know what you know, know what you don't know as much as possible. Um, I th- I think what once you understand that you really lean into risk, then you like sort of the next step is you you want to come up with really good systems that push you the other way. You know, so if so if you're not naturally someone who you know, shies away from that environment, you, you need a group or a system that challenges you or pushes you back the other way. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. So, um, and, and that's like, if you have a really good, uh, system or like your guide meeting, um, that's what that ought to be doing. Like that ought to challenge, you know, so, so if you had guessed that most people in that room, even though some are going to be, you know, push on the hard side of risk and some are going to be a little more conservative really as a group you're, you're probably you know more more of a risk seeking group right so you need to design a system that really challenges you to justify what you're going to do out there you know to, to where you're going to take people and, and what you're going to try and pull off and and that's not an easy thing to do, you know, and, and it's, it's something that, uh, again, like sort of develops within the organization, but, uh, like, you know, in, in the rubies, we, we go through weather, we go, you know, weather snowpack observations, but I, I think one of the best additions over the last few years is to also, you know, we've added the mindset, the strategic mindset to the discussion, like what, like, where are we and why do we think we're there? And but the, but the more that process challenges you and walks you through the objective side of the process, the, the better your, the better the end results seem to be. Right. And that sort of helps to set the narrative for the day. It, it, it really does. It's, it's really hard to overstate like how important I think the the base narrative is to your to your you know your project or your operation. Um, in I'll use another Antarctica example. Um, if you if you went in that dining tent in Antarctica and you you know we we laugh, but if you chucked a rock, you're going to hit some. You know you're going to hit someone that's climbed Mount Everest seventeen times. You're going to hit a polar pilot with, um, you know, 20,000 hours of experience, you're going to hit a Guinness book of world record holder, you know, it's an unbelievable team, right? But uh, every year we have these really, really close calls. I, I'm, I know because I'm the guy that like sort of records them and tries to analyze them. So, so you can have this, this sort of Instagram, Facebook narrative, you know, of, of being a badass or a, a group of world-class guides or, you know, a world-class organization. But, but that is 
a really bad narrative from which to evaluate risk. If that makes sense. Like, like if you already think that you're the best at it. Yeah. If, if you think that you've kind of done this, you've been doing this for like in the, the rubies, you know, that we've been operating for 40, 40 plus years, 45 years, um, you know, Joe and Tom and now Mike and, um, you know, all of the guides are level, you know, highest level avalanche certification. And, you know, you, you have all these calls and, and, and you can like, that's fine for the website. Right. But if, if, if that's your belief going out the door that, you know, you've kind of got it wired, you've seen it before, you've been doing it for a long, long time and never, that's, um, you're just kind of asking for trouble where I, I think, you know, I think we, if we stepped way back to that 50,000 foot level and, and really looked at it objectively, we would, you know, you really quickly realize that every time you step into the avalanche environment, that you're stepping into an environment that nobody has ever seen or experienced before. And yes, it's really similar to, and, and the more experience you have, the more, more of that pattern recognition you'll have, but you know, it's really funny. We say every snowflake is different. Well, you know, let's time that by a trillion and add wind and temperatures and terrain. And like, it, it really is every day, this absolutely unique combination that's come together. And if you have, if that's the narrative, like if that's the metadata that you're entering into the field with, um, there's, there's some real benefits to that. One is you become, you know, we were talking about looking for that, that 10%, what, you know, the top of the, the top of the curve, the differentiation, right? Like, so if that's your base narrative that you're going into this environment that no one's ever experienced before, especially you, um, you start looking for what's different, right? You start looking for something that might surprise you. Um, you know, another huge benefit to that base narrative is that when you get surprised, you're not as likely to be shocked or thrown off your game. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like you, you sort of expect to be taken off your guard. And, and so I find that like when things go bad, you react much, much more quickly. If you have that as a narrative, like, you know, surprises aren't as surprising. And, but you also, you're, you're much more disciplined with, you know, your basics, like checking your beacons, using your spacing, um, you know, train management, all that, uh, all those other margins that you start to build into your system. They just become, they, they come to you much, much more naturally if, if that's kind of, if you're sort of creeping and tiptoeing in that environment rather than just sort of blasting out there and expecting to have a great time and, and not really see much or engage much and that, you know, you're not going to get surprised. One thing I've always appreciated about the rubies is how, um, the things, the way that skiing is done there is the same given any avalanche hazard really i mean like 
technique, as Tom Carter said, technique is your protection, right? And the systems that are in place are built upon a, a deep, deep knowledge base of the terrain and what the patterns of the snowpack usually are. Um, but everything is done very similar, uh, really regardless of, of what level of avalanche hazard there is. Would you agree with that? Yeah, very much so. I, I think it's one of the most valuable things that I've, you know, taken away from there. Um, do, do you want to talk about the cherry avalanche? Yeah, that'd be that, great. That's a, all right. Um, so, you know this, story, but like the, it was probably the worst day of my guiding career, um, just to give people a background. And, and this has been close to a decade ago, so I'm, I'm probably not getting my facts you know, exactly right. But hopefully the, the story translates, but, uh, I was actually, I, I was looking at the photo just a few days ago, we were going through our run lists and, um, uh, you can see the shot hole, but in, anyway, um, so we were working, um, uh, there's a persistent weak layer had been around for weeks and weeks. Um, we were well aware of it. Um, we'd been running kind of scared for quite some time and we're, but it had been unreactive for, couple weeks at least um we had shot the slope we'd shot actually explosive tested the slope no results um and so i let out my group uh on a run we call cherry just a big open kind of bowl i guess you would call it face uh, my group made it down fine the next groups were landing on the ridge and the really interesting thing to me and why I think about it a lot is that, um, when I, when I skied off the top, um, I, I wasn't at all nervous, but I did, I do remember just so distinctly thinking like, this is just completely different than what I was expecting. You know, the snow was warmer than I thought it was. It was more consolidated. Um, you know, obviously like, you know, it was just, um, I'd expected it to be a lot less, um, it, it really not as much of a slab. Um, but it, it was, but there was nothing that there was no, there was no surface, you know, sign that would have, you know, there was no collapsing, there was no cracking, there was no, what you would call a storm. You know, if, if you would call it a storm slab, you also would have said it was like, like completely bonded to the snow beneath it. You know, we had gotten a small reset, a few inches that had just sort of covered some old tracks. Um, so, so there was nothing about it that made me um, scared or nervous. And the only thing, you know, we, we talked a little bit earlier about sort of that curve of knowledge, like, um, you know, I, I, it, it was just completely different than I thought it was. So, um, I got to the bottom. The next group was skiing. Um, the guide cam, uh, was an experienced Alaska heli ski guy, but he was kind of newer to the rubies and, um, he was clarifying on the radio where to go. And, um, uh, I was kind of talking him in on a line. Um, he, he actually called me a few times and I wasn't like annoyed, but I was almost a little bit dismissive. And I, I was just say, yeah, yeah. You know, just, yep. You're on it. Just, just buy those trees and, 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 
you know, I, I was in production mode. I was like, all right, the groups are starting to stack up on the ridge, thinking about my next run, where are we going? And, uh, and I think it, it was his third skier. Um, and, and he was a little up Valley from where I would have put him exactly, but we're talking yards and his third skier triggered, like he, he sort of hit this, there, there's a, a convex roll that goes over a rock slab in there that we, you know, try to avoid, you know, it was just like, uh, his weight was able to transfer down into that persistent weak layer and, uh, from my perspective at the pickup down sort of at the bottom of the valley, I just watched that whole mountain just sort of liquefy, you know, it just like cracked into these enormous pieces. Um, instantly the, you know, the whole slope was running. Uh, I could see a couple of people that were down. So at the bottom of the slope, you cross sort of a long flat area and up onto a little Ridge. And I watched the, and there were people on that. There were his, two or three of his group were on that waiting on that Ridge. And I just watched the the dust cloud roll over those guys. And, um, and so that was the first time my, like, and only time, and, you know, knock on wood that I've ever thought that I like, man, I, I just killed people. Like they're, they're probably dead people. And uh, I, the helicopter was already on its way down. So I jumped in it and I, I was flying up to the Ridge um, think I could help with the search, dig. Communications are not great in there, so get to you know get a hold of base. And even as I was flying up, um, Cam and the next guide Hans were already on site. Um, beacons out. They had the skier that uh, it was a border who triggered the avalanche, and we were we had you know you know the the end result was that nobody was um, buried. You know, the, the guy that triggered the avalanche took a really short ride right on the very edge of the slab, um, stayed on the surface the whole time. The, uh, the dust cloud that sort of rolled over the bench, um, that, the debris didn't actually like cross the bench. It came, well, it came really close to where those people were standing. And I think even the debris eventually did like cross where maybe they had been standing originally, but they had both they'd both skied off of that ridge and down valley and it's and, and so they hadn't been around and around and talking to the guides and and you know just like over and over count them again count them again you know give me names like i i just couldn't like believe that we hadn't caught anybody but but that leads into your uh you know, talking about margins and procedure, what, what went right there? Um, and, and this, this was like, I guess what really drove home to me is like everything else went right, you know? So we'd had this catastrophic failure. I'd made a, like a really bad call where to go and could kind of minimize the hazard. But, um, you know, we had 40 years of, of, of that experience, you know, Joe Royer and Tom Carter of saying, this is, you know, these are the lines you ski. This is where the avalanche breaks. This is the safety zone. You know, if, if Cam had blown me off and just like gone up Ridge and skied, you know, a, a, a line that he picked out instead of, you know, clarifying with me, like exactly where to be, you know, if, uh, 
if uh, Hans had not held his skiers on the ridge, you know, while, you know, just making sure it was one at a time, you know, if, if the guys, if the groups hadn't skied one at a time and been in that safety zone where they could ski off, you know, like everything else had to work perfectly. Um, and did, we were lucky, you know, that day, but also, you know, using that, those, those procedures is, um, we're not going to call it right all the time. You know, like I, I think, so the big realization for me, one was like, like far from perfect, right? Like you can miss major, major things, how important procedure was, but then also, my biggest lesson is like, you know, what we can normalize, you know, um, we talked about all, you know, backcountry skiing, skiing out of a helicopter, you know, being so close to that edge. And then we were adding to that, like a meter and a half of, you know, snow on a, on a persistent, on a known persistent weak layer. And, and that, that wasn't, but that was just like ops normal. That was kind of life as a heli guide and that, you know, for me, it was just almost a routine day. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like how, how does that become routine? (laughs) How are you you just taking on that much exposure and being like to the point where you like, it's just completely normal. I don't see it too unsimilar to like how we've normalized just driving. Right. Like I, it boggles my mind most times that I get in my vehicle and just hurdle myself down the freeway at 75 miles an hour in a hunk of metal, like inches from other cars doing the same or, you know, on an undivided highway coming the opposite direction. But, you know, as a society and as humans, we've, we've just kind of normalized that and, and we accept that risk. Right. And we, do things to reduce our exposure and vulnerability. You know, maybe we try to reduce the time that we spend in our vehicles when there's a lot of traffic or when there's inclement weather. And of course, our most people's vehicles have um, airbags and seatbelts, and we can do things to reduce our our vulnerability if something happens. Um, but that's that's kind of the way that I see it is is creating margins to help reduce our exposure and vulnerability. And I think one of the ways that you're talking about creating those margins is to have, have procedures and to have good communication and do things the same way. Yeah. I I think that's a great way to put it. And traffic is a great example because it, it, it's, it's such a, um, it's so interesting what we can normalize, right? Like we know that, everyone around us is probably, you know, texting with one hand, latte and the other driving with their knees. We're all, you know, barreling down the highway at 80. And, and that's just like, yeah, ops normal. This is, this is how we get to work. So, um, and, and yet we know that like all the time it goes catastrophically wrong. Right. But we just believe that that's not going to happen to us. You know, we, we, we think our skills are going to be sharp enough or, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it's one of the really fascinating things about people is what they, what they can get used to. Yeah. That risk tolerance creep. I mean, I, I saw somebody playing the violin driving down two fifteen one one time in Salt Lake. You know? it's like, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I'm sure I, it was. 
as as like an organization, as a guiding team, I think it's really important to kind of take a hard look at that risk tolerance creep that that can happen over time, right? Yeah, and and like you said, there there are margins and and discussions and decision points, trigger points. There 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 are a lot of tools and. You know, you've had some great people on the podcast, you know, Colin Zacharias, Sarah Carpenter, like that talk about those systems and, you know, what they ought to be and how to implement them. But like, again, like the more you realize like all this stuff, you know, your capacity to lean into risk, your, your biases, your, the, the more you just, yeah, you get really interested in, in designing these systems that kind of thwart all that stuff. One of the things I think a lot about is um, predictability and decisions. And uh, so we can, um, you know, your traffic example is really, really good. What, um, and why is that different from backcountry skiing? So um, your ability to, to predict your environment is exactly equal to the danger that environment presents to you. So, so if we use your freeway example, um, you know, like there's some random stuff that goes on, but in, in a lot of ways, it's fairly predictable, you know, like everybody knows they're supposed to be going in the same direction for the most part. They're, they're at approximately the same speeds. Everybody has known and agreed upon the rules Right. It's, it's, it's predictable enough to be fairly safe, you know, um, where, uh, it, I'll, I'll give you another example. Like, um, if, if you went to a shooting range, you could be, you know, you could have a hundred people pouring 10,000 bullets down, down range. And as long as everybody knows where all those bullets are gone, it's not a problem, right? It's, it's, it's an entirely predictable and therefore not a dangerous environment. Whereas if just a single one of those person, you know, in that environment decides to do something weird with their firearm, all of a sudden your environment just became really, really dangerous. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, and, and that has a lot to do with, you can equate that very, very well to the avalanche terrain. And it's a question that you should ask yourself all the time. Like, how good is my prediction, right? Um, one thing I, I, I think about a lot is, uh, you know, last year we had a, this really unique event um, where at least in the Utah for a time, we had an entirely black compass rose. Like everything was extreme. Like it was really interesting to me, like the amount of people that still ski toured in that environment. And um and one of the things I think we don't do very well is, is we take our experiences, you know, we, we talked a little bit about it earlier. So we have, maybe we've got 10, 20 years of, of skiing in the back country, but how many days do we have like doing that under those conditions in that environment, you know, like even you or I, or, you know, Liam or some of these guys, they could probably count on one hand, two hand, two hands at the most in the last couple of decades, you've had conditions that extreme. So if you've only like experienced or operated in those conditions 
that many times in the last couple of decades, you know, what is your ability to predict or interact with that environment going to be? Like you should never mistake, you know, all your other experience is having much to do with your, your operating in that other environment. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think, it, so just to tie that together, um, and we, we talked a little bit about decision and momentum. Like when we decide to go into these environments, like if you decide to go to Nepal and climb an 8,000 meter peak, um, and Conrad Anchor has a great uh, quote about this, and I, I can't, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but he talks about um, there's so much randomity in environments like that, like the, between the glacier and the ice and the, the snow avalanche and the rock fall that, you know, you can, you can have, you can have modified your, your own personal risk objectively. You can have every skill set. You can be the best alpinist in the world. And if you go into that environment, there is so much random randomity or a, a, you would just say there's so little prediction on some of that stuff that 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 original decision just to enter that environment might not be survivable we go way back to that original decision chain you know like i'm i'm gonna ski i'm gonna ski in the back country i'm gonna ski with helicopters like at each point along that chain you've like like you've really diminished your ability to interact or dictate the outcome mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, we can talk about, so I, I was over in, um, Nepal in 2015 when they had their, their really big earthquake. Uh, we were between camp one and two on Mount Everest in the, in the Western Coombe, which is this, if your listeners aren't familiar with it, it's this very, very narrow, narrow valley that sits between the West shoulder of Everest, uh, has lotes yet they had Noopsy on the, on the downside shoulder. And so, um, you know, you, you're in this incredibly narrow valley with, you know, 10,000 feet of mountains all above you in this giant cirque. Um, I don't know exactly what the alpha angles are, <laughs> but they certainly, you know, they're not good. Like any, anything coming off those walls is probably, you know, could eat, can, can easily cross the entire valley. So there's no real safe spot in there. Um, but uh, yeah, we were between camp one and two and, you know, I, I heard this, um, like just gunshot, like crack, you know, like you're cracking an ice tray, but multiplied by a million times. And then, uh, and then the ground just kind of starts going up and down and up and down. And, um, like you're on a trampoline, but out of sync, you know, have you ever jumped, bounced up and down, you, you the, the tramp comes up and you're going down and you just, you're getting thrown all over the place. Yeah. So it was like that, but again, magnify it like by a million times, you know, this, the, and the, these peaks are just shaking back and forth and, um, people are yelling earthquake. We, um, we, uh, you talk about alpha angles, you know, we, we thought, well, you know, we're going to run to the middle of the Valley and we you know, <laughs> jump off the trail and we run like three feet and it's, it's way steep snow and there's no place to go. And oh. so just like, we just stopped. And, um, by now you can hear it's, it's a cloudy day. You know, you occasionally get these little glimpses of blue sky and light snow and, but, but it's mostly cloud and, and, uh, 
you can just hear the avalanches start to pour down off of these peaks and um the noise is getting louder and louder and louder and um long time to think about it you know like i i'm pretty sure everybody in that valley was like okay this is this is how we go like this is it we got a <laughs> and um we got hit by an air blast and sort of just knocked completely flat like it was really powerful air blast just packed it would just packed us all in i was with a couple of um uh japanese clients we were kind of towards the back and so the three of us just got smashed into the snow and just uh you know pulverized ice crystals just like everywhere like just packed hard in in every like fold of clothing and um you know up your nose and mouth and and uh we're just kind of curled up there waiting for the big stuff to hit you know you just figure if you get hit with an air blast like that you're, the big chunks are coming and um it just got uh and then and then the valley just started getting quieter you know all that noise and like the just the freight train rumble of everything falling down just sort of eventually um dissipated and and got up like we're gonna live and the radio starts going off and people are talking and um and and the, the crazy thing the really crazy thing about that experience is that everything or everybody on the mountain survived like there were no fatalities on the mountain um later we we that evening we would find out that um our base camp got wiped out um and it killed night i think 19 in the end people in base camp um mm -hmm. including our medic and uh and and a, a lot of people were really injured and beat up and so some of our our, our staff and my friend michael were, were pretty smashed up um down there at base camp so you know you talk you talk about that conrad anchor quote you know like and and surviving that original decision um if if you know if you make the decision to to be in those places um you can just do everything right and uh, it, and it might not make a difference which is a really interesting thing to think about you know like if if you're going into that backcountry environment um you don't control it you know you, you just from that original the momentum of that original decision you, you just um you cede a lot of your power right? <laughs> and and uh at the very beginning we talked about like evaluating you know your subjective you know year by year month by month you know how do you feel about what you're doing um and uh yeah, I think that's a really good realization that most of, you know, the, the guys that have been on your show that have been doing it for a really, really long time would tell you is that, um, you know, whatever margins you think you have or you think you're building in, they're, they're, they're probably not nearly as big or as comfortable as you think they are. How, how have you sort of made peace with that acceptance of randomity yeah so that's a thanks for that that's so the other huge lesson i took from that avalanche that that really plays into that is that um so during that avalanche um 
the, the conservative estimates are that 10,000 people um, were killed wow. in, in Nepal and India. Um, and again, those are really conservative. The censuses are not great in that part of the world, as you can imagine. And I had friends that uh, stayed on for quite a bit of time to try and help, and they would fly out to some of these villages and, you know, they, they'd basically just liquefied. Um, there, there, there wasn't, so there wasn't anything left and you know probably a lot of fatalities and whoever had survived had like left and you know it, so it, it's really hard to say like what the actual um number is but but what what is what really affected me was that you know we were on the mountain we were, we thought we were doing something like really really dangerous and, and, and we were to a, to a small extent, but there were, there were like 10,000 people that got up that morning and um, were going to work, you know, talk about routine, you know, like, like it probably couldn't have been more routine. And, you know, that was it. They didn't, you know, none of them made it to dinner time. So, I, so on one hand, you have like this, I think uh, myself and a lot of us, we have this personality where you know, we talked about, we lean into risk and, you know, what do we get out of it? It makes us feel alive, makes, you know, it, it focuses on our concentration. Um, it's engaging. Um, you know, there's really, really good and compelling reasons to go out there and do what we do. And to, to like, think like you could sit at home, you could play it safe. Um, uh, but the, that's that's no guarantee either <laughs> you know, like it's just i so how how do you deal between those two things like you know you have this riskless existence and sit at home on the couch and i don't know maybe you know who knows what happens you know maybe maybe airplane falls out of the sky you know who i don't know who knows but um i th- i think in the end it's it's a lot healthier I know it is for me to like go into those environments that, you know, they're, that's where I'm happy. It's where, you know, I find peace. It's what is interesting to me, makes me feel alive, you know, like all of those benefits, I, I think at least right now in my life, like that, that outweighs kind of the, those rant, those super random events that you can't control. You know, I, I guess, um, uh, you know, one thing I took from that is, you know, when those things were coming down, you had a really long time to think about it. And one of the really cool things was that I didn't have any regrets, you know, like I was like pretty certain I was going to go. And like, I was just like, Hey, you know what? That was, that was a pretty good role. <laughs> like, that was, I don't know if that makes sense to you or your listeners, but like, like, yeah, it's, we're, you could say that maybe it's kind of stupid to go out and do this stuff, but on the other hand, like, um, I just, uh, yeah, I, in, in the end, like, I think it's a more meaningful existence. I think that's a, a great answer. And I don't know, sometimes I just bask in, in the awe of how, how fragile life is. Right. But, um, and, and how it could be over so quickly, um, and that that oftentimes gives me more motivation to go live live larger. 
yeah right i think is is that the answer like you know to to do it but to you know do what we want to do but maybe just to try all the time to do it a little bit better you know like <laughs> just there there is always stuff that we can do on that just to just make sure we come home right mm-hmm. like most most of the most of our accidents are us right we're the ones triggering the slides like th- those are the stats right it's not the weird random crazy stuff like right, right? most of our fatalities you know are are from us so so we can do a lot we can do better at that yeah it's not all out of our control but certainly some things are and as as yeah. uh, my friend Sean Zimmerman Wall likes to say we have to maintain our ability to be surprised yeah every, yeah that's a great way to put it well fred i appreciate you coming on the show and and sharing some of your experiences and your thoughts around risk and risk management risk tolerance um I've really appreciated this. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kale. I, I hope it makes sense. I hope it helps somebody. Um, I love moving around the mountains with you. Let's uh, do it again soon. I can't wait. All right, man. Take care. Have a good day. Cheers. Hey, thanks, Fred, for that great conversation. I appreciate you. And thank you for your continued listenership to the Avalanche Hour podcast. If you're enjoying the show, tell a friend. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Follow us on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Music on today's episode was created and performed by Ketza. You can find more of their tracks at ketza.uk. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You demand T. I'd also like to thank Angela and Edmund for your continued support. They've been making monthly donations via the PayPal link on the avalanchehour.com website. Appreciate you guys. You too can make a... You too can make a difference and help us continue this great project by showing your support with a monthly donation. Uh, Check out www.theavalanchehour.com and you can find a link there to help show your support. As Season 6 comes to an end here, we do have one more episode that will be featuring Nikki Champion, a forecaster from the Utah Avalanche Center. That will be airing on June 1st. Looking forward to that one. But as you reflect on the winter that you've had and maybe some of the things that you've gleaned from the Avalanche Hour podcast episodes, uh, shoot us an email. Tell us what you think. You can reach out at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com or fill out a contact form from the website. Let us know who you'd like to hear from next season. We're compiling a list and and we'll do our best to get those guests on the show that, that you're suggesting. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.